Art often takes advantage of this property of desiring machines by creating veritable group fantasies in which desiring production is used to short-circuit social production, and to interfere with the reproductive function of technical machines by introducing an element of dysfunction. Armin's charred violins, for instance, or Caesar's compressed car bodies. More generally, Dolly's method of critical paranoia assures the explosion of a desiring machine within an object of social production. But even earlier, Ravel preferred to throw his inventions entirely out of gear rather than let them simply run down, and chose to end his compositions with abrupt breaks, hesitations, tremolos, discordant notes, and unresolved chords, rather than allowing them to slowly wind down to a close or gradually die away into silence. 32 The artist is the master of objects, he puts before us shattered, burned, broken down objects, converting them to the regime of desiring machines, breaking down is part of the very functioning of desiring machines, the artist presents paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines as so many technical machines, so as to cause desiring machines to undermine technical machines. Even more important, the work of art is itself a desiring machine. The artist stores up his treasures so as to create an immediate explosion, and that is why, to his way of thinking, destructions can never take place as rapidly as they ought to. From this, a second difference in regime results, desiring machines produce anti-production all by themselves, whereas the anti-production characteristic of technical machines takes place only within the extrinsic conditions of the reproduction of the process, even though these conditions do not come into being at some later stage. That is why technical machines are not an economic category, and always refer back to a socius or a social machine that is quite distinct from these machines, and that conditions this reproduction. A technical machine is therefore not a cause but merely an index of a general form of social production, thus there are manual machines and primitive societies, hydraulic machines and Asiatic forms of society, industrial machines and capitalism. Hence when we posited the socius as the analogue of a full body without organs, there was nonetheless one important difference. For desiring machines are the fundamental category of the economy of desire, they produce a body without organs all by themselves, and make no distinction between agents and their own parts, or between the relations of production and their own relations, or between the social order and technology. Desiring machines are both technical and social. It is in this sense that desiring production is the locus of a primal psychic repression 33 whereas social production is where social repression takes place, and it is between the former and the latter that there occurs something that resembles secondary psychic repression in the strictest sense, the situation of the body without organs or its equivalent is the crucial factor here, depending on whether it is the result of an internal process or of an extrinsic condition, and thus affects the role of the death instinct in particular but at the same time they are the same machines, despite the fact that they are governed by two different regimes and despite the fact that it is admittedly a strange adventure for desire to desire repression. There is only one kind of production, the production of the real. And doubtless we can express this identity in two different ways, even though these two ways together constitute the auto-production of the unconscious as a cycle. We can say that social production, under determinate conditions, derives primarily from desiring production, which is to say that homo natura comes first. But we must also say, 
more accurately, that desiring production is first and foremost social in nature, and tends to free itself only at the end, which is to say that homo historia comes first. The body without organs is not an original primordial entity that later projects itself into different sorts of socius, as though it were a raving paranoiac, the chieftain of the primitive horde, who was initially responsible for social organization. The social machine or socius may be the body of the earth, the body of the despot, the body of money. It is never a projection, however, of the body without organs. On the contrary, the body without organs is the ultimate residuum of a deterritorialized socius. The prime function incumbent upon the socius, has always been to codify the flows of desire, to inscribe them, to record them, to see to it that no flow exists that is not properly dammed up, channeled, regulated. When the primitive territorial machine proved inadequate to the task, the despotic machine set up a kind of overcoating system. But the capitalist machine, insofar as it was built on the ruins of a despotic state more or less far removed in time, finds itself in a totally new situation, it is faced with the task of decoding and deterritorializing the flows. Capitalism does not confront this situation from the outside, since it experiences it as the very fabric of its existence, as both its primary determinant and its fundamental raw material, its form and its function, and deliberately perpetuates it, in all its violence, with all the powers at its command. Its sovereign production and repression can be achieved in no other way. Capitalism is in fact born of the encounter of two sorts of flows, the decoded flows of production in the form of money capital, and the decoded flows of labor in the form of the free worker. Hence, unlike previous social machines, the capitalist machine is incapable of providing a code that will apply to the whole of the social field. By substituting money for the very notion of a code, it has created an axiomatic of abstract quantities that keeps moving further and further in the direction of the deterritorialization of the socius. Capitalism tends toward a threshold of decoding that will destroy the socius in order to make it a body without organs and unleash the flows of desire on this body as a deterritorialized field. Is it correct to say that in this sense schizophrenia is the product of the capitalist machine, as manic depression and paranoia are the product of the despotic machine, and hysteria the product of the territorial machine? The decoding of flows and the deterritorialization of the socius thus constitutes the most characteristic and the most important tendency of capitalism. It continually draws near to its limit, which is a genuinely schizophrenic limit. It tends, with all the strength at its command, to produce the schizo as the subject of the decoded flows on the body without organs more capitalist than the capitalist and more proletarian than the proletariat. This tendency is being carried further and further, to the point that capitalism with all its flows may dispatch itself straight to the moon, we really haven't seen anything yet. When we say that schizophrenia is our characteristic malady, the malady of our era, we do not merely mean to say that modern life drives people mad. It is not a question of a way of life, but of a process of production. Nor is it merely a question of a simple parallelism, even though from the point of view of the failure of codes, such a parallelism is a much more precise formulation of the relationship between, for example, the phenomena of shifting of meaning in the case of schizophrenics and the mechanisms of ever-increasing disharmony and discord at every level of industrial society.
what we are really trying to say is that capitalism, through its process of production, produces an awesome schizophrenic accumulation of energy or charge, against which it brings all its vast powers of repression to bear, but which nonetheless continues to act as capitalism's limit. For capitalism constantly counteracts, constantly inhibits this inherent tendency while at the same time allowing it free reign, it continually seeks to avoid reaching its limit while simultaneously tending toward that limit. Capitalism institutes or restores all sorts of residual and artificial, imaginary, or symbolic territorialities, thereby attempting, as best it can, to recode, to rechannel persons who have been defined in terms of abstract quantities. Everything returns or recurs, states, nations, families. That is what makes the ideology of capitalism a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed. The real is not impossible, it is simply more and more artificial. Marx termed the twofold movement of the tendency to a falling rate of profit, and the increase in the absolute quantity of surplus value, the law of the counteracted tendency. As a corollary of this law, there is the twofold movement of decoding or deterritorializing flows on the one hand, and their violent and artificial re-territorialization on the other. The more the capitalist machine deterritorializes, decoding, and axiomatizing flows in order to extract surplus value from them, the more its ancillary apparatuses, such as government bureaucracies and the forces of law and order, do their utmost to re-territorialize, absorbing in the process a larger and larger share of surplus value. There is no doubt that at this point in history the neurotic, the pervert, and the psychotic cannot be adequately defined in terms of drives, for drives are simply the desiring machines themselves. They must be defined in terms of modern territorialities. The neurotic is trapped within the residual or artificial territorialities of our society, and reduces all of them, lay robot touts, to Oedipus as the ultimate territoriality as reconstructed in the analyst's office and projected upon the full body of the psychoanalyst, yes, my boss is my father, and so is the chief of state, and so are you, doctor. The pervert is someone who takes the artifice seriously and plays the game to the hilt, if you want them, you can have them territorialities infinitely more artificial than the ones that society offers us, totally artificial new families, secret lunar societies. As for the schizo, continually wandering about, migrating here, there, and everywhere as best he can, he plunges further and further into the realm of deterritorialization, reaching the furthest limits of the decomposition of the socius on the surface of his own body without organs. It may well be that these peregrinations are the schizo's own particular way of rediscovering the earth. The schizophrenic deliberately seeks out the very limit of capitalism, he is its inherent tendency brought to fulfillment, its surplus product, its proletariat, and its exterminating angel. He scrambles all the codes and is the transmitter of the decoded flows of desire. The real continues to flow. In the schizo, the two aspects of process are conjoined, the metaphysical process that puts us in contact with the demoniacal element in nature or within the heart of the earth, and the historical process of social production that restores the autonomy of desiring machines in relation to the deterritorialized social machine. Schizophrenia is desiring production as the limit of social production. Desiring production, and its difference in regime as compared to social production, are thus endpoints, 
not points of departure. Between the two there is nothing but an ongoing process of becoming that is the becoming of reality. And if materialist psychiatry may be defined as the psychiatry that introduces the concept of production into consideration of the problem of desire, it cannot avoid posing in eschatological terms the problem of the ultimate relationship between the analytic machine, the revolutionary machine, and desiring machines. 5. The Machines In what respect are desiring machines really machines, in anything more than a metaphorical sense? A machine may be defined as a system of interruptions or breaks, couillers. These breaks should in no way be considered as a separation from reality, rather, they operate along lines that vary according to whatever aspect of them we are considering. Every machine, in the first place, is related to a continual material flow, Heil, that it cuts into. It functions like a ham slicing machine, removing portions from the associative flow, the anus and the flow of shit it cuts off, for instance, the mouth that cuts off not only the flow of milk but also the flow of air and sound, the penis that interrupts not only the flow of urine but also the flow of sperm. Each associative flow must be seen as an ideal thing, an endless flux, flowing from something not unlike the immense thigh of a pig. The term heil in fact designates the pure continuity that any one sort of matter ideally possesses. When Robert Jolin describes the little balls and pinches of snuff used in a certain initiation ceremony, he shows that they are produced each year as a sample taken from an infinite series that theoretically has one and only one origin, a single ball that extends to the very limits of the universe. 34 Far from being the opposite of continuity, the break or interruption conditions this continuity, it presupposes or defines what it cuts into as an ideal continuity. This is because, as we have seen, every machine is a machine of a machine. The machine produces an interruption of the flow only insofar as it is connected to another machine that supposedly produces this flow. And doubtless this second machine in turn is really an interruption or break, too. But it is such only in relationship to a third machine that ideally that is to say, relatively produces a continuous, infinite flux, for example, the anus machine and the intestine machine, the intestine machine and the stomach machine, the stomach machine and the mouth machine, the mouth machine and the flow of milk of a herd of dairy cattle, and then and then and then. In a word, every machine functions as a break in the flow in relation to the machine to which it is connected, but at the same time is also a flow itself, or the production of a flow, in relation to the machine connected to it. This is the law of the production of production. That is why, at the limit point of all the transverse or transfinite connections, the partial object and the continuous flux, the interruption and the connection, fuse into one, everywhere there are breaks flows out of which desire wells up, thereby constituting its productivity and continually grafting the process of production onto the product. It is very curious that Melanie Klein, whose discovery of partial objects was so far-reaching, neglects to study flows from this point of view and declares that they are of no importance, she thus short-circuits all the connections. Connecticut, connect I cut. Cries little Joey. In his study The Empty Fortress, Bruno Bettelheim paints the portrait of this young child who can live, eat, defecate, and sleep only if he is plugged into machines provided with motors, wires, lights, carburetors, propellers, and steering wheels, an electrical feeding machine, 
a car machine that enables him to breathe, an anal machine that lights up. There are very few examples that cast as much light on the regime of desiring production, and the way in which breaking down constitutes an integral part of the functioning, or the way in which the cutting off is an integral part of mechanical connections. Doubtless there are those who will object that this mechanical, schizophrenic life expresses the absence and the destruction of desire rather than desire itself, and presupposes certain extremely negative attitudes on the part of his parents to which the child reacts by turning himself into a machine. But even Bettelheim, who has a noticeable bias in favor of Oedipal or pre-Oedipal causality, admits that this sort of causality intervenes only in response to autonomous aspects of the productivity or the activity of the child, although he later discerns in him a non-productive stasis or an attitude of total withdrawal. Hence there is first of all, according to Bettelheim, an autonomous reaction to the total life experience, of which the mother is only a part. Also we must not think that the machines themselves are proof of the loss or repression of desire, which Bettelheim translates in terms of autism. We find ourselves confronted with the same problem once again, how has the process of the production of desire, how have the child's desiring machines begun to turn endlessly round and round in a total vacuum, so as to produce the child machine? How has the process turned into an end in itself? Or how has the child become the victim of a premature interruption or a terrible frustration? It is only by means of the body without organs, eyes closed tight, nostrils pinched shut, ears stopped up, that something is produced, counterproduced, something that diverts or frustrates the entire process of production, of which it is nonetheless still a part. But the machine remains desire, an investment of desire whose history unfolds, by way of the primary repression and the return of the repressed, in the succession of the states of paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines through which little Joey passes as Bettelheim's therapy progresses. In the second place, every machine has a sort of code built into it, stored up inside it. This code is inseparable not only from the way in which it is recorded and transmitted to each of the different regions of the body, but also from the way in which the relations of each of the regions with all the others are recorded. An organ may have connections that associate it with several different flows, it may waver between several functions, and even take on the regime of another organ the anorectic mouth, for instance. All sorts of functional questions thus arise, what flow to break? Where to interrupt it? How and by what means? What place should be left for other producers or anti-producers, the place of one's little brother, for instance? Should one, or should one not, suffocate from what one eats, swallow air, shit with one's mouth? The data, the bits of information recorded, and their transmission form a grid of disjunctions of a type that differs from the previous connections. We owe to Jacques Lacan the discovery of this fertile domain of a code of the unconscious, incorporating the entire chain or several chains of meaning, a discovery thus totally transforming analysis. The basic text in this connection is his La Lettre Voli the Purloined Letter, but how very strange this domain seems, simply because of its multiplicity a multiplicity so complex that we can scarcely speak of one chain or even of one code of desire. The chains are called signifying chains, shen signifiance, because they are made up of signs, but these signs are not themselves signifying. 
The code resembles not so much a language as a jargon, an open-ended, polyvocal formation. The nature of the signs within it is insignificant, as these signs have little or nothing to do with what supports them. Or rather, isn't the support completely immaterial to these signs? The support is the body without organs. These indifferent signs follow no plan, they function at all levels and enter into any and every sort of connection, each one speaks its own language, and establishes syntheses with others that are quite direct along transverse vectors, whereas the vectors between the basic elements that constitute them are quite indirect. The disjunctions characteristic of these chains still do not involve any exclusion, however, since exclusions can arise only as a function of inhibitors and repressors that eventually determine the support and firmly define a specific, personal subject. No chain is homogeneous, all of them resemble, rather, a succession of characters from different alphabets in which an ideogram, a pictogram, a tiny image of an elephant passing by, or a rising sun may suddenly make its appearance. In a chain that mixes together phonemes, morphemes, etc., without combining them, papa's mustache, mama's upraised arm, a ribbon, a little girl, a cop, a shoe suddenly turn up. Each chain captures fragments of other chains from which it extracts a surplus value, just as the orchid code attracts the figure of a wasp, both phenomena demonstrate the surplus value of a code. It is an entire system of shuntings along certain tracks, and of selections by lot, that bring about partially dependent, aleatory phenomena bearing a close resemblance to a Markov chain. The recordings and transmissions that have come from the internal codes, from the outside world, from one region to another of the organism, all intersect, following the endlessly ramified paths of the great disjunctive synthesis. If this constitutes a system of writing, it is a writing inscribed on the very surface of the real, a strangely polyvocal kind of writing, never a biunivocalized, linearized one, a transcursive system of writing, never a discursive one, a writing that constitutes the entire domain of the real inorganization of the passive synthesis, where we would search in vain for something that might be labeled the signifier writing that ceaselessly composes and decomposes the chains into signs that have nothing that impels them to become signifying. The one vocation of the sign is to produce desire, engineering it in every direction. These chains are the locus of continual detachment schizes plus on every hand that are valuable in and of themselves and above all must not be filled in. This is thus the second characteristic of the machine, brakes that are a detachment, coupures detachements, which must not be confused with brakes that are a slicing off, coupures prelevements. The latter have to do with continuous fluxes and are related to partial objects. Schizes have to do with heterogeneous chains, and as their basic unit use detachable segments or mobile stocks resembling building blocks or flying bricks. We must conceive of each brick as having been launched from a distance and as being composed of heterogeneous elements, containing within it not only an inscription with signs from different alphabets, but also various figures, plus one or several straws, and perhaps a corpse. Cutting into the flows, le prelevement du flux, involves detachment of something from a chain, and the partial objects of production presuppose stocks of material or recording bricks within the coexistence and the interaction of all the synthesis. 
How could part of a flow be drawn off without a fragmentary detachment taking place within the code that comes to inform the flow? When we noted a moment ago that the schizo is at the very limit of the decoded flows of desire, we meant that he was at the very limit of the social codes, where a despotic signifier destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bricks as so many immobile units for the construction of an imperial great wall of China. But the schizo continually detaches them, continually works them loose and carries them off in every direction in order to create a new polyvocity that is the code of desire. Every composition, and also every decomposition, uses mobile bricks as the basic unit. Diashisis and diaspasis, as Monacau put it, either a lesion spreads along fibers that link it to other regions and thus gives rise at a distance to phenomena that are incomprehensible from a purely mechanistic, but not a machinic, point of view, or else a humoral disturbance brings on a shift in nervous energy and creates broken, fragmented paths within the sphere of instincts. These bricks or blocks are the essential parts of desiring machines from the point of view of the recording process, they are at once component parts and products of the process of decomposition that are spatially localized only at certain moments, by contrast with the nervous system, which is a great chronogenous machine, a melody-producing machine of the music box type, with a non-spatial localization.35 What makes Monacau and Morgue's study an unparalleled one, going far beyond the entire Jacksonist philosophy that originally inspired it, is the theory of bricks or blocks, their detachment and fragmentation, and above all what such a theory presupposes, the introduction of desire into neurology. The third type of interruption or break characteristic of the desiring machine is the residual break, coupure rest, or residuum, which produces a subject alongside the machine, functioning as a part adjacent to the machine. And if this subject has no specific or personal identity, if it traverses the body without organs without destroying its indifference, it is because it is not only a part that is peripheral to the machine, but also a part that is itself divided into parts that correspond to the detachments from the chain, detachments de chen, and the removals from the flow, prelevements de flux, brought about by the machine. Thus this subject consumes and consummates each of the states through which it passes, and is born of each of them anew, continuously emerging from them as a part made up of parts, each one of which completely fills up the body without organs in the space of an instant. This is what allows Lakin to postulate and describe in detail an interplay of elements that is more machinic than etymological, perere, to procure, separe, to separate, se perere, to engender oneself. At the same time he points out the intensive nature of this interplay, the part has nothing to do with the whole, it performs its role all by itself. In this case, only after the subject has partitioned itself does it proceed to its parturition. That is why the subject can procure what is of particular concern to it here, a state that we would label a legitimate status within society. Nothing in the life of any subject would sacrifice a very large part of its interests 36. Like all the other breaks, the subjective break is not at all an indication of a lack or need, monk, but on the contrary a share that falls to the subject as a part of a whole, income that comes its way as something left over. Here again, how bad a model the Oedipal model of castration is. That is because breaks or interruptions are not the result of an analysis, rather, in and of themselves, 
they are synthesis. Synthesis produce divisions. Let us consider, for example, the milk the baby throws up when it burps, it is at one and the same time the restitution of something that has been levied from the associative flux, restitution de prelevement sur le flux associative, the reproduction of the process of detachment from the signifying chain, reproduction de detachement sur la chaîne signifiant, and a residuum, residu, that constitutes the subject's share of the whole. The desiring machine is not a metaphor, it is what interrupts and is interrupted in accordance with these three modes. The first mode has to do with the connective synthesis, and mobilizes libido as withdrawal energy, energy de prelevement. The second has to do with the disjunctive synthesis, and mobilizes the numen as detachment energy, energy de detachment. The third has to do with the conjunctive synthesis, and mobilizes voluptas as residual energy, energy residual. It is these three aspects that make the process of desiring production at once the production of production, the production of recording, and the production of consumption. To withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over, is to produce, and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. 6. The whole and its parts. In desiring machines everything functions at the same time, but amid hiatuses and ruptures, breakdowns and failures, stalling and short circuits, distances and fragmentations, within a sum that never succeeds in bringing its various parts together so as to form a whole. That is because the breaks in the process are productive, and are reassemblies in and of themselves. Disjunctions, by the very fact that they are disjunctions, are inclusive. Even consumptions are transitions, processes of becoming, and returns. Maurice Blancott has found a way to pose the problem in the most rigorous terms, at the level of the literary machine, how to produce, how to think about fragments whose sole relationship is sheer difference fragments that are related to one another only in that each of them is different without having recourse either to any sort of original totality, not even one that has been lost, or to a subsequent totality that may not yet have come about, 37 it is only the category of multiplicity, used as a substantive and going beyond both the one and the many, beyond the predicative relation of the one and the many, that can account for desiring production, desiring production is pure multiplicity, that is to say, an affirmation that is irreducible to any sort of unity. We live today in the age of partial objects, bricks that have been shattered to bits, and leftovers. We no longer believe in the myth of the existence of fragments that, like pieces of an antique statue, are merely waiting for the last one to be turned up, so that they may all be glued back together to create a unity that is precisely the same as the original unity. We no longer believe in a primordial totality that once existed, or in a final totality that awaits us at some future date. We no longer believe in the dull grey outlines of a dreary, colourless dialectic of evolution, aimed at forming a harmonious whole out of heterogeneous bits by rounding off their rough edges. We believe only in totalities that are peripheral. And if we discover such a totality alongside various separate parts, it is a whole of these particular parts but does not totalize them, it is a unity of all of these particular parts but does not unify them, rather, it is added to them as a new part fabricated separately. It comes into being, but applying this time to the whole as some inspired fragment composed separately. 
So Proust writes of the unity of Balzac's creation, though his remark is also an apt description of his own over.38 in the literary machine that Proust's In Search of Lost Time constitutes, we are struck by the fact that all the parts are produced as asymmetrical sections, paths that suddenly come to an end, hermetically sealed boxes, non-communicating vessels, watertight compartments, in which there are gaps even between things that are contiguous, gaps that are affirmations, pieces of a puzzle belonging not to any one puzzle but to many, pieces assembled by forcing them into a certain place where they may or may not belong, their unmatched edges violently bent out of shape, forcibly made to fit together, to interlock, with a number of pieces always left over. It is a schizoid work par excellence, it is almost as though the author's guilt, his confessions of guilt are merely a sort of joke. In Cleonian terms, it might be said that the depressive position is only a cover-up for a more deeply rooted schizoid attitude. For the rigors of the law are only an apparent expression of the protest of the one, whereas their real object is the absolution of fragmented universes, in which the law never unites anything in a single whole, but on the contrary measures and maps out the divergences, the dispersions, the exploding into fragments of something that is innocent precisely because its source is madness. This is why in Proust's work the apparent theme of guilt is tightly interwoven with a completely different theme totally contradicting it, the plant-like innocence that results from the total compartmentalization of the sexes, both in Charles's encounters and in Albertine's slumber, where flowers blossom in profusion and the utter innocence of madness is revealed, whether it be the patent madness of Charles or the supposed madness of Albertine. Hence Proust maintained that the whole itself is a product, produced as nothing more than a part alongside other parts, which it neither unifies nor totalizes, though it has an effect on these other parts simply because it establishes aberrant paths of communication between non-communicating vessels, transverse unities between elements that retain all their differences within their own particular boundaries. Thus in the trip on the train in In Search of Lost Time, there is never a totality of what is seen nor a unity of the points of view, except along the transversal that the frantic passenger traces from one window to the other, in order to draw together, in order to reweave intermittent and opposite fragments. This drawing together, this reweaving is what Joyce called re-embodying. The body without organs is produced as a whole, but in its own particular place within the process of production, alongside the parts that it neither unifies nor totalizes. And when it operates on them, when it turns back upon them, se robots or else, it brings about transverse communications, transfinite summarizations, polyvocal and transcursive inscriptions on its own surface, on which the functional breaks of partial objects are continually intersected by breaks in the signifying chains, and by breaks affected by a subject that uses them as reference points in order to locate itself. The whole not only coexists with all the parts, it is contiguous to them, it exists as a product that is produced apart from them and yet at the same time is related to them. Geneticists have noted the same phenomenon in the particular language of their science. Amino acids are assimilated individually into the cell, and then are arranged in the proper sequence by a mechanism analogous to a template onto which the distinctive side chain of each acid keys into its proper position 39. As a general rule, the problem of the relationships between parts and the whole continues to be rather awkwardly formulated by classic mechanism and vitalism, 
so long as the whole is considered as a totality derived from the parts, or as an original totality from which the parts emanate, or as a dialectical totalization. Neither mechanism nor vitalism has really understood the nature of desiring machines, nor the twofold need to consider the role of production in desire and the role of desire in mechanics. There is no sort of evolution of drives that would cause these drives and their objects to progress in the direction of an integrated whole, any more than there is an original totality from which they can be derived. Melanie Klein was responsible for the marvelous discovery of partial objects, that world of explosions, rotations, vibrations. But how can we explain the fact that she has nonetheless failed to grasp the logic of these objects? It is doubtless because, first of all, she conceives of them as fantasies and judges them from the point of view of consumption, rather than regarding them as genuine production. She explains them in terms of causal mechanisms, introjection and projection, for instance, of mechanisms that produce certain effects, gratification and frustration, and of mechanisms of expression, good or bad, an approach that forces her to adopt an idealist conception of the partial object. She does not relate these partial objects to a real process of production of the sort carried out by desiring machines, for instance. In the second place, she cannot rid herself of the notion that schizoparanoid partial objects are related to a whole, either to an original whole that has existed earlier in a primary phase, or to a whole that will eventually appear in a final depressive stage, the complete object. Partial objects hence appear to her to be derived from, preleaves sir, global persons, not only are they destined to play a role in totalities aimed at integrating the ego, the object, and drives later in life, but they also constitute the original type of object relation between the ego, the mother, and the father. And in the final analysis that is where the crux of the matter lies. Partial objects unquestionably have a sufficient charge in and of themselves to blow up all of Oedipus and totally demolish its ridiculous claim to represent the unconscious, to triangulate the unconscious, to encompass the entire production of desire. The question that thus arises here is not at all that of the relative importance of what might be called the pre-Oedipal in relation to Oedipus itself, since pre-Oedipal still has a developmental or structural relationship to Oedipus. The question, rather, is that of the absolutely anoedipal nature of the production of desire. But because Melanie Klein insists on considering desire from the point of view of the whole, of global persons, and of complete objects and also, perhaps, because she is eager to avoid any sort of contraton with the International Psychoanalytic Association that bears above its door the inscription let no one enter here who does not believe in Oedipus she does not make use of partial objects to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus, on the contrary, she uses them or makes a pretense of using them to water Oedipus down, to miniaturize it, to find it everywhere, to extend it to the very earliest years of life. If we here choose the example of the analyst least prone to see everything in terms of Oedipus, we do so only in order to demonstrate what a forcing was necessary for her to make Oedipus the sole measure of desiring production. And naturally this is all the more true in the case of run-of-the-mill practitioners who no longer have the slightest notion of what the psychoanalytic movement is all about. It is no longer a question of suggestion, but of sheer terrorism. Melanie Klein herself writes, The first time Dick came to me, he manifested no sort of affect when his nurse handed him over to me. 
When I showed him the toys I had put ready, he looked at them without the faintest interest. I took a big train and put it beside a smaller one and called them Daddy Train and Dick Train. Thereupon he picked up the train I called Dick and made it roll to the window and said station. I explained, the station is mummy, Dick is going into mummy. He left the train, ran into the space between the outer and inner doors of the room, shutting himself in, saying dark, and ran out again directly. He went through this performance several times. I explained to him, it is dark inside mummy. Dick is inside dark mummy. Meantime he picked up the train again, but soon ran back into the space between the doors. While I was saying that he was going into dark mummy, he said twice in a questioning way, nurse. As his analysis progressed. Dick had also discovered the wash basin as symbolizing the mother's body, and he displayed an extraordinary dread of being wetted with water 40. Say that it's Oedipus, or you'll get a slap in the face. The psychoanalyst no longer says to the patient, tell me a little bit about your desiring machines, won't you? Instead he screams, answer daddy and mommy when I speak to you. Even Melanie Klein. So the entire process of desiring production is trampled underfoot and reduced to, rebutto sir, parental images, laid out step by step in accordance with supposed pre-edible stages, totalized in Oedipus, and the logic of partial objects is thereby reduced to nothing. Oedipus thus becomes at this point the crucial premise in the logic of psychoanalysis. For as we suspected at the very beginning, partial objects are only apparently derived from, preleaves sir, global persons, they are really produced by being drawn from, preleaves sir, a flow or a non-personal hyle, with which they re-establish contact by connecting themselves to other partial objects. The unconscious is totally unaware of persons as such. Partial objects are not representations of parental figures or of the basic patterns of family relations, they are parts of desiring machines, having to do with the process and with relations of production that are both irreducible and prior to anything that may be made to conform to the Oedipal figure. When the break between Freud and Jung is discussed, the modest and practical point of disagreement that marked the beginning of their differences is too often forgotten, Jung remarked that in the process of transference the psychoanalyst frequently appeared in the guise of a devil, a god, or a sorcerer, and that the roles he assumed in the patient's eyes went far beyond any sort of parental images. They eventually came to a total parting of the ways, yet Jung's initial reservation was a telling one. The same remark holds true of children's games. A child never confines himself to playing house, to playing only at being daddy and mommy. He also plays at being a magician, a cowboy, a cop, or a robber, a train, a little car. The train is not necessarily daddy, nor is the train station necessarily mommy. The problem has to do not with the sexual nature of desiring machines, but with the family nature of the sexuality. Admittedly, once the child has grown up, he finds himself deeply involved in social relations that are no longer familial relations. But since these relations supposedly come into being at a later stage in life, there are only two possible ways in which this can be explained, it must be granted either that sexuality is sublimated or neutralized in and through social, and metaphysical, relations, in the form of an analytic afterward, or else that these relations bring into play a non-sexual energy, 
for which sexuality has merely served as the symbol of an anagogical beyond. It was their disagreement on this particular point that eventually made the break between Freud and Jung irreconcilable. Yet at the same time the two of them continued to share the belief that the libido cannot invest a social or metaphysical field without some sort of mediation. This is not the case, however. Let us consider a child at play, or a child crawling about exploring the various rooms of the house he lives in. He looks intently at an electrical outlet, he moves his body about like a machine, he uses one of his legs as though it were an oar, he goes into the kitchen, into the study, he runs toy cars back and forth. It is obvious that his parents are present all this time, and that the child would have nothing were it not for them. But that is not the real matter at issue. The matter at issue is to find out whether everything he touches is experienced as a representative of his parents. Ever since birth his crib, his mother's breast, her nipple, his bowel movements are desiring machines connected to parts of his body. It seems to us self-contradictory to maintain, on the one hand, that the child lives among partial objects, and that on the other hand he conceives of these partial objects as being his parents, or even different parts of his parents' bodies. Strictly speaking, it is not true that a baby experiences his mother's breast as a separate part of her body. It exists, rather, as a part of a desiring machine connected to the baby's mouth, and is experienced as an object providing a non-personal flow of milk, be it copious or scanty. A desiring machine and a partial object do not represent anything, a partial object is not representative, even though it admittedly serves as a basis of relations and as a means of assigning agents a place and a function, but these agents are not persons, any more than these relations are intersubjective. They are relations of production as such, and agents of production and anti-production. Ray Bradbury demonstrates this very well when he describes the nursery as a place where desiring production and group fantasy occur, as a place where the only connection is that between partial objects and agents. Point 41 The small child lives with his family around the clock, but within the bosom of this family, and from the very first days of his life, he immediately begins having an amazing non-familial experience that psychoanalysis has completely failed to take into account. Lindner's painting attracts our attention once again. It is not a question of denying the vital importance of parents or the love attachment of children to their mothers and fathers. It is a question of knowing what the place and the function of parents are within desiring production, rather than doing the opposite and forcing the entire interplay of desiring machines to fit within, Rabatra tout l'Egypte de machines desirance dans, the restricted code of Oedipus. How does the child first come to define the places and the functions that the parents are going to occupy as special agents, closely related to other agents? From the very beginning Oedipus exists in one form and one form only, open in all directions to a social field, to a field of production directly invested by libido. It would seem obvious that parents indeed make their appearance on the recording surface of desiring production. But this is in fact the crux of the entire Oedipal problem, what are the precise forces that cause the Oedipal triangulation to close up? Under what conditions does this triangulation divert desire so that it flows across a surface within a narrow channel that is not a natural conformation of this surface? How does it form a type of inscription for experiences and the workings of mechanisms that extend far beyond it in every direction? 
it is in this sense and this sense only that the child relates the breast as a partial object to the person of his mother, and constantly watches the expression on his mother's face. The word relate in this case does not designate a natural productive relationship, but rather a relation in the sense of a report or an account, an inscription within the overall process of inscription, within the numen. From his very earliest infancy, the child has a wide-ranging life of desire a whole set of non-familial relations with the objects and the machines of desire that is not related to the parents from the point of view of immediate production, but that is ascribed to them, with either love or hatred, from the point of view of the recording of the process, and in accordance with the very special conditions of this recording, including the effect of these conditions upon the process itself, feedback. It is amid partial objects and within the non-familial relations of desiring production that the child lives his life and ponders what it means to live, even though the question must be related to his parents and the only possible tentative answer must be sought in family relations. I remember that ever since I was eight years old, and even before that, I always wondered who I was, what I was, and why I was alive, I remember that at the age of six, on a house on the Boulevard de la Blancardia in Marseilles, number 29, to be precise, just as I was eating my afternoon snack a chocolate bar that a certain woman known as my mother gave me I asked myself what it meant to exist, to be alive, what it meant to be conscious of oneself breathing, and I remember that I wanted to inhale myself in order to prove that I was alive and to see if I liked being alive, and if so why 42. That is the crucial point, a question occurs to the child that will perhaps be related to the woman known as mommy, but that is not formulated in terms of her, but rather produced within the interplay of desiring machines at the level, for example, of the mouth air machine or the tasting machine, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to breathe? What am I? What sort of thing is this breathing machine on my body without organs? The child is a metaphysical being. As in the case of the Cartesian cogito, parents have nothing to do with these questions. And we are guilty of an error when we confuse the fact that this question is related to the parents, in the sense of being recounted or communicated to them, with the notion that it is related to them in the sense of a fundamental connection with them. By boxing the life of the child up within the Oedipus complex, by making familial relations the universal mediation of childhood, we cannot help but fail to understand the production of the unconscious itself, and the collective mechanisms that have an immediate bearing on the unconscious, in particular, the entire interplay between primal psychic repression, the desiring machines, and the body without organs. For the unconscious is an orphan, and produces itself within the identity of nature and man. The auto-production of the unconscious suddenly became evident when the subject of the Cartesian cogito realized that it had no parents, when the socialist thinker discovered the unity of man and nature within the process of production, and when the cycle discovers its independence from an indefinite parental regression. To quote Artaud once again, I got no slash papamummy. We have seen how a confusion arose between the two meanings of process, process as the metaphysical production of the demoniacal within nature, and process as social production of desiring machines within history. Neither social relations nor metaphysical relations constitute an afterward or a beyond. The role of such relations must be recognized in all psychopathological processes, 
and their importance will be all the greater when we are dealing with psychotic syndromes that would appear to be the most animal-like and the most desocialized. It is in the child's very first days of life, in the most elementary behavior patterns of the suckling babe, that these relations with partial objects, with the agents of production, with the factors of anti-production are woven, in accordance with the laws of desiring production as a whole. By failing from the beginning to see what the precise nature of this desiring production is, and how, under what conditions, and in response to what pressures, the Oedipal triangulation plays a role in the recording of the process, we find ourselves trapped in the net of a diffuse, generalized Oedipalism that radically distorts the life of the child and his later development, the neurotic and psychotic problems of the adult, and sexuality as a whole. Let us keep D.H. Lawrence's reaction to psychoanalysis in mind, and never forget it. In Lawrence's case, at least, his reservations with regard to psychoanalysis did not stem from terror at having discovered what real sexuality was. But he had the impression the purely instinctive impression that psychoanalysis was shutting sexuality up in a bizarre sort of box painted with bourgeois motifs, in a kind of rather repugnant artificial triangle, thereby stifling the whole of sexuality as production of desire so as to recast it along entirely different lines, making of it a dirty little secret, the dirty little family secret, a private theater rather than the fantastic factory of nature and production. Lawrence had the impression that sexuality possessed more power or more potentiality than that. And though psychoanalysis may perhaps have managed to disinfect the dirty little secret, the dreary, dirty little secret of Oedipus the modern tyrant benefited very little from having been thus disinfected. Is it possible that, by taking the path that it has, psychoanalysis is reviving an age-old tendency to humble us, to demean us, and to make us feel guilty? Foucault has noted that the relationship between madness and the family can be traced back in large part to a development that affected the whole of bourgeois society in the 19th century, the family was entrusted with functions that became the measuring rod of the responsibility of its members and their possible guilt. Insofar as psychoanalysis cloaks insanity in the mantle of a parental complex, and regards the patterns of self-punishment resulting from Oedipus as a confession of guilt, its theories are not at all radical or innovative. On the contrary, it is completing the task begun by 19th-century psychology, namely, to develop a moralized, familial discourse of mental pathology, linking madness to the half-real, half-imaginary dialectic of the family, deciphering within it the unending attempt to murder the father, the dull thud of instincts hammering at the solidity of the family as an institution and at its most archaic symbols 43. Hence, instead of participating in an undertaking that will bring about genuine liberation, psychoanalysis is taking part in the work of bourgeois repression at its most far-reaching level, that is to say, keeping European humanity harnessed to the yoke of daddy-mommy and making no effort to do away with this problem once and for all. A 17th-century priest and bishop of Geneva, known for his introduction to the devout life. Daniel Paul Schreber was a German judge who began psychiatric treatment in 1884 at the age of 42, and spent the remaining 27 years of his life in and out of mental institutions. In 1903, at the age of 61, he published his Denkwürdigkeit and Ernst Nervenkranken, Memoirs of a Nervous Illness, which Freud used as the basis of his influential 1911 study on paranoia, psychoanalytic notes, 
Reference Note 7, page 384 of this volume, pages 390-472. Translator's Note As will be seen below, the term Oedipus has many widely varying connotations in this volume. It refers, for instance, not only to the Greek myth of Oedipus and to the Oedipus complex as defined by classical psychoanalysis, but also to Oedipal mechanisms, processes, and structures. The translators follow the author's use and employ the word Oedipus by itself, using the more traditional term Oedipus complex only when the authors do so. Translators note. The French term enregistrement has a number of meanings, among them the process of making a recording to be played back by a mechanical device, example a phonograph, the recording so made, example a phonograph record or a magnetic tape, and the entering of births, deaths, deeds, marriages and so on, in an official register. Translator's Note Plus when Georges Baudelaire speaks of sumptuary, non-productive expenditures or consumptions in connection with the energy of nature, these are expenditures or consumptions that are not part of the supposedly independent sphere of human production, insofar as the latter is determined by the useful. They therefore have to do with what we call the production of consumption. See Georges Baudelaire La Part Modite, Précis de la Notion de Dépense, Paris, Editions Diminuit. Henry Miller, Tropic of Cancer, ch. 13. See in this same chapter the celebration of desire as few expressed in the phrase. And my guts spilled out in a grand schizophrenic rush, an evacuation that leaves me face to face with the absolute. A series of monographs, issued periodically, containing reproductions of artworks created by inmates of the psychiatric asylums of Europe. L. Art Brut is edited by Jean Dubuffet. Bricolage, the tinkering about of the bricoler, or amateur handyman. The art of making do with what's at hand. Translator's Note Plus Claude Levi Strauss, The Savage Mind, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 1966, p. 17, The bricoler is adept at performing a large number of diverse tasks, but unlike the engineer, he does not subordinate each of them to the availability of raw materials and tools conceived and procured for the purpose of the project. His universe of instruments is closed and the rules of his game are always to make do with whatever is at hand, that is to say with a set of tools and materials which is always finite and is also heterogeneous because what it contains bears no relation to the current project, or indeed to any particular project but is the contingent result of all the occasions there have been to renew or enrich the stock or to maintain it with the remains of previous constructions or destructions. Antonin Artaud, in 84, NOS 5-6, 1948. The French text reads, L.E. Corest, E. Cor slash ILS Sol slash ETNA Pabisoin D Organis slash L.E. Cor NS Jumais Unorganismus slash Lay Organism Sunt Lay Animus Du Cor. Translator's Note Throughout, all English translations of works cited in the text are by the translators, unless otherwise noted. Plus we have adopted this term throughout, except when quoting directly from psychoanalytic literature, because it renders more faithfully the meaning of investal cement, which in French does service in libidinal as well as political economy. We have likewise chosen to translate investor as to invest instead of to cathect. Translator's Note 
the verb se rabatrasur, and the noun rebatmanel, used by the authors here and in numerous instances in the text below, has several different connotations, as lore instance, in descriptive geometry, to describe the rotation of a plane so as to coincide with another plane, usually followed by a reverse rotation back into its original position, a retreat to a previously held position, as in a battle, and a reduction to a lower level. In the English text below, it will be translated in various ways, depending on the context, followed by the French expression in parentheses. Translator's note. The French term here is energy de consumalien. The word consummation has a number of meanings in French, among them consummation, as of a marriage, an ultimate fulfillment or perfection, and consumption, as of raw material, fuel, or products. The term has therefore been translated variously below, depending on the context. Translator's note. W.R.Bion is the first to have stressed this importance of the I feel, but he places it in the realm of fantasy and makes it an effective parallel of the slash think. See Elements of Psychoanalysis, London, Heinemann, 1963, pages 94 ff. Lakin's admirable theory of desire appears to us to have two poles, one related to the object small as a desiring machine, which defines desire in terms of a real production, thus going beyond both any idea of need and any idea of fantasy, and the other related to the great other as a signifier, which reintroduces a certain notion of lack. In Serge Leclerc's article La Realite du Désir, ch4, reference note 26, the oscillation between these two poles can be seen quite clearly. The French word monk may mean both lack and need in a psychological sense, as well as want or privation or scarcity in an economic sense. Depending upon the context, it will hence be translated in various ways below. Translator's note. Plus Maurice Clavel remarks, apropos of Jean-Paul Sartre, that a Marxist philosophy cannot allow itself to introduce the notion of scarcity as its initial premise, such a scarcity antedating exploitation makes of the law of supply and demand a reality that will remain forever independent, since it is situated at a primordial level. Hence it is no longer a question of including or deducing this law within Marxism, since it is immediately evident at a prior stage, at a level from which Marxism itself derives. Being a rigorous thinker, Marx refuses to employ the notion of scarcity, and is quite correct to do so, for this category would be his undoing. In Key Est Alieni, Paris, Flammarion, 1970, p. 330. We find in the case of culturalists a distinction between rational systems and projective systems, with psychoanalysis applying only to these latter, as for example in Abram Cardiner. Despite their hostility to culturalism, we find in both Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse certain traces of this same dualism, even though they define the rational and the irrational in a completely different way and assign them quite different roles. Plus institutional analysis is the more political tendency of institutional psychotherapy, begun in the late 1950s as an attempt to collectively deal with what psychoanalysis so hypocritically avoided, namely the psychoses. Laborde Clinic, established in 1955 by Jean Aury of the École Freudienne de Paris, served as the locus for discussions on institutional psychotherapy, and Jacques Lacan's seminars served as the intellectual basis for these discussions in the beginning. <laughs>
Felix Gewateri joined the clinic in 1956, as a militant interested in the notions of desire under discussion a topic rarely dealt with by militants at that time. Preferring the term institutional analysis over institutional psychotherapy, Gewateri sought to push the movement in a more political direction, toward what he later described as a political analysis of desire. In any case this injection of a psychoanalytical discourse, Lakin's version, into a custodial institution led to a collectivization of the analytical concepts. Transference came to be seen as institutional, and fantasies were seen to be collective desire was a problem of groups and jour groups. See Jacques Donzelot's excellent article on anti-Oedipus, on anti-sociology in Esprit, December 1972, and Gilles Deleuze's detailed discussion of Gewateri's notion of groups and desire, Trois Problems de Group in Félix Gewateri, Psychanalyse et Transversale, Paris, Maspero, 1972. Translator's Note The word regime has a number of different meanings in French, including, regimen or form of government, a set of laws, rules, or regulations, rate of flow, as of a current, rate or speed of operation, as of a motor or engine. Since the authors use the word in several senses, the French word regime has been retained throughout the English text. Translator's Note On hysteria, schizophrenia, and their relationships with social structures, see the analyses by Georges Devereux in his essays D'Ethnopsychiatrie Generate, Paris, Gallimard, P67 TF and the wonderful pages in Karl Jasper's Strindberg und Van Gogh, Berlin, J. Springer, 1926. English translation, Strindberg and Van Gogh, trans. Oscar Grano Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona Press. The question has been asked, is madness in our time a state of total sincerity, in areas where in less chaotic times one would have been capable of honest experience and expression without it? Jaspers reformulates this question by adding, we have seen that in former times human beings attempted to drive themselves into hysteria, and we might say that today many human beings attempt to drive themselves into madness in much the same way. But if the former attempt was to a certain extent psychologically possible, the latter is not possible at all, and can lead only to inauthenticity. The author's word for this process is pretiement. The French word has a number of meanings, including, a skimming or a draining off, a removal of a certain quantity as a sample or for purposes of testing, a setting apart of a portion or share of the whole, a deduction from a sum of money on deposit. In the English text that follows, in a number of cases the noun prelevement or the corresponding verb prelever will be indicated in parentheses following its translation. Translator's Note Children of both sexes regard urine in its positive aspect as equivalent to their mother's milk, in accordance with the unconscious, which equates all bodily substances with one another. Melanie Klein, The Psychoanalysis of Children, Trans. Alex Strachey, The International Psychoanalytic Library, No. 22, London, Hogarth Press and the Institute of Psychoanalysis, 1954, p. 291. First edition, 1932. C. Jacques Lacan, Remarque sur le rapport de Daniel Lagache, in Acryls, Reference Note 36, 
of an exclusion having its source in these signs as such being able to come about only as a condition of consistency within a chain that is to be constituted, let us also add that the one dimension limiting this condition is the translation of which such a chain is capable. Let us consider this game of lotto for just a moment more. We may then discover that it is only because these elements turn up by sheer chance within an ordinal series, in a truly unorganized way, that their appearance makes us draw lots, p658. Plus a coined word, French skis, based on the Greek verb skisin, to split, to cleave, to divide. Translator's note. Anti-Oedipus. Psychoanalysis and Familialism, The Holy Family. Translated by Robert Hurley and Mark Seem. 1. The Imperialism of Oedipus. Oedipus Restrained is the figure of the Daddy Mommy Me Triangle, the familial constellation in person. But when psychoanalysis makes of Oedipus its dogma, it is not unaware of the existence of relations said to be pre-Oedipal in the child, exo-Oedipal in the psychotic, para-Oedipal in others. The function of Oedipus as dogma, or as the nuclear complex, is inseparable from a forcing by which the psychoanalyst as theoretician elevates himself to the conception of a generalized Oedipus. On the one hand, for each subject of either sex, he takes into consideration an intensive series of instincts, effects, and relations that link the normal and positive form of the complex to its inverse or negative form, a standard model Oedipus, such as Freud presence in the ego and the id, which makes it possible to connect the pre-Oedipal phases with the negative complex when this seems called for. On the other hand, he takes into consideration the coexistence in extension of the subjects themselves and their multiple interactions, a group Oedipus that brings together relatives, descendants, and ascendants. It is in this manner that the schizophrenic's visible resistance to Oedipalization, the obvious absence of the Oedipal link, can be obscured in a grand parental constellation, either because an accumulation of three generations is deemed necessary in order to produce a psychotic, or because an even more direct mechanism of intervention by the grandparents in the psychosis is discovered, and Oedipuses of Oedipus are constituted, to the second power, neurosis, that's father-mother, but grandma, that's psychosis. Finally, the distinction between the imaginary and the symbolic permits the emergence of an Oedipal structure as a system of positions and functions that do not conform to the variable figure of those who come to occupy them in a given social or pathological formation, a structural Oedipus, 3 plus 1, that does not conform to a triangle, but performs all the possible triangulations by distributing in a given domain desire, its object, and the law. It is certain that the two preceding modes of generalization attain their full scope only in structural interpretation. Structural interpretation makes Oedipus into a kind of universal Catholic symbol, beyond all the imaginary modalities. It makes Oedipus into a referential axis not only for the pre-Oedipal phases, but also for the para-Oedipal varieties, and the exo-Oedipal phenomena. The notion of foreclosure, for example, seems to indicate a specifically structural deficiency, by means of which the schizophrenic is of course repositioned on the Oedipal axis, set back into the Oedipal orbit in the perspective, for example, of the three generations, where the mother was not able to posit her desire toward her own father, nor the son, consequently, toward the mother. One of Lakin's disciples writes, 
we are going to consider the means by which the Oedipal organization plays a role in psychoses, next, what the forms of psychotic pregenitality are and how they are able to maintain the Oedipal reference. Our preceding criticism of Oedipus therefore risks being judged totally superficial and petty, as if it applied solely to an imaginary Oedipus and aimed at the role of parental figures, without at all penetrating the structure and its order of symbolic positions and functions. For us, however, the problem is one of knowing if, indeed, that is where the difference enters in. Wouldn't the real difference be between Oedipus, structural as well as imaginary, and something else that all the Oedipuses crush and repress, desiring production the machines of desire that no longer allow themselves to be reduced to the structure any more than to persons, and that constitute the real in itself, beyond or beneath the symbolic as well as the imaginary. We in no way claim to be taking up an endeavor such as Malinowski's, showing that the figures vary according to the social form under consideration. We even believe what we are told when Oedipus is presented as a kind of invariant. But the question is altogether different, is there an equivalence between the productions of the unconscious and this invariant between the desiring machines and the Oedipal structure? Or rather, does not the invariant merely express the history of a long mistake, throughout all its variations and modalities, the strain of an endless repression? What we are calling into question is the frantic Oedipalization to which psychoanalysis devotes itself, practically and theoretically, with the combined resources of image and structure. And despite some fine books by certain disciples of Lakin, we wonder if Lakin's thought really goes in this direction. Is it merely a matter of Oedipalizing even the schizo? Or is it a question of something else, and even the contrary? Wouldn't it be better to schizophrenize to schizophrenize the domain of the unconscious as well as the socio-historical domain, so as to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus and rediscover everywhere the force of desiring production, to renew, on the level of the real, the tie between the analytic machine, desire, and production? For the unconscious itself is no more structural than personal, it does not symbolize any more than it imagines or represents, it engineers, it is machinic. Neither imaginary nor symbolic, it is the real in itself, the impossible real and its production. But what is this long history, if we consider it only during the period of psychoanalysis? It does not take place without doubts, detours, and repentances. La Planche and Pontalis note that Freud discovers the Oedipus complex in 1897 in the course of his self-analysis, but that he doesn't give a generalized theoretical form to it until 1923, in the ego and the id, and that, between these two formulations, Oedipus leads a more or less marginal existence, confined for example to a separate chapter on object choice at puberty, three essays, or to a chapter on typical dreams, the interpretation of dreams, dot. They say that this is because a certain abandonment by Freud of the theory of traumatism and seduction leads not to a univocal determination of Oedipus, but to the description as well of a spontaneous infantile sexuality of an endogenous nature. It is as if Freud never managed to articulate the interrelations of Oedipus and infantile sexuality, the latter referring to a biological reality of development, the former to a psychic fantasy reality. Oedipus is what all but got lost for the sake of a biological realism one. But is it correct to present things in this way? 
did the imperialism of Oedipus require only the renunciation of biological realism? Or wasn't something else sacrificed to Oedipus, something infinitely stronger? For what Freud and the first analysts discover is the domain of free synthesis where everything is possible, endless connections, non-exclusive disjunctions, non-specific conjunctions, partial objects, and flows. The desiring machines pound away and throb in the depths of the unconscious, Irma's injection, the wolf man's tick-tock, Anna's coughing machine, and also all the explanatory apparatuses set into motion by Freud, all those neurobiologico-desiring machines. And the discovery of the productive unconscious has what appear to be two correlates, on the one hand, the direct confrontation between desiring production and social production, between symptomological and collective formations, given their identical nature and their differing regimes, and on the other hand, the repression that the social machine exercises on desiring machines, and the relationship of psychic repression with social repression. This will all be lost, or at least singularly compromised, with the establishment of a sovereign Oedipus. Free association, rather than opening onto polyvocal connections, confines itself to a univocal impasse. All the chains of the unconscious are biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from a despotic signifier. The whole of desiring production is crushed, subjected to the requirements of representation, and to the dreary games of what is representative and represented in representation. And there is the essential thing, the reproduction of desire gives way to a simple representation, in the process as well as theory of the cure. The productive unconscious makes way for an unconscious that knows only how to express itself express itself in myth, in tragedy, in dream. But who says that dream, tragedy, and myth are adequate to the formations of the unconscious, even if the work of transformation is taken into account? Grodek remained more faithful than Freud to an auto-production of the unconscious in the co-extension of man and nature. It is as if Freud had drawn back from this world of wild production and explosive desire, wanting at all costs to restore a little order there, an order made classical owing to the ancient Greek theatre. For what does it mean to say that Freud discovered Oedipus in his own self-analysis? Was it in his self-analysis, or rather in his Gideon classical culture? In his self-analysis he discovers something about which he remarks, well now, that looks like Oedipus. And at first he considers this something as a variant of the familial romance, a paranoiac recording by which desire causes precisely the familial determinations to explode. It is only little by little that he makes the familial romance, on the contrary, into a mere dependence on Oedipus, and that he neuroticizes everything in the unconscious at the same time as he Oedipalizes, and closes the familial triangle over the entire unconscious. The schizo there is the enemy. Desiring production is personalized, or rather personologized, personologisi, imaginarized, imaginaracy, structuralized. We have seen that the real difference or frontier did not lie between these terms, which are perhaps complementary. Production is reduced to mere fantasy production, production of expression. The unconscious ceases to be what it is a factory, a workshop to become a theater, a scene, and its staging and not even an avant-garde theatre, such as existed in Freud's day, Wedekind, but the classical theatre, the classical order of representation. The psychoanalyst becomes a director for a private theatre, 
rather than the engineer or mechanic who sets up units of production, and grapples with collective agents of production and anti-production. Psychoanalysis is like the Russian Revolution, we don't know when it started going bad. We have to keep going back further. To the Americans. To the first international. To the secret committee. To the first ruptures, which signify renunciations by Freud as much as betrayals by those who break with him. To Freud himself, from the moment of the discovery of Oedipus. Oedipus is the idealist turning point. Yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis set to work unaware of desiring production. The fundamental notions of the economy of desire work and investment keep their importance, but are subordinated to the forms of an expressive unconscious and no longer to the formations of the productive unconscious. The anoedipal nature of desiring production remains present, but it is fitted over the coordinates of Oedipus, which translate it into pre-Oedipal, para-Oedipal, quasi-Oedipal, etc. The desiring machines are always there, but they no longer function except behind the consulting room walls. Behind the walls or in the wings, such is the place the primal fantasy concedes to desiring machines, when it reduces everything to the Oedipal scene 1a. They continue nevertheless to make a hellish racket. Even the psychoanalyst can't ignore them. He tends therefore to maintain an attitude of denial, all of that is surely true, but it is still daddy mommy. Over the consulting room door is written, leave your desiring machines at the door, give up your orphan and celibate machines, your tape recorder and your little bike, enter and allow yourself to be edipalized. Everything follows from that, beginning with the unreliable character of the cure, its interminable and highly contractual nature, flows of speech in exchange for flows of money. All that is needed is what is called a psychotic episode, after a schizophrenic flash, one day we bring our tape recorder into the analyst's office stop, with this insertion of a desiring machine everything is reversed, we have broken the contract, we are not faithful to the major principle of the exclusion of a third party, we have introduced a third element the desiring machine in person. Yet every psychoanalyst should know that, underneath Oedipus, through Oedipus, behind Oedipus, his business is with desiring machines. At the beginning, Psychoanalysts could not be unaware of the forcing employed to introduce Oedipus, to inject it into the unconscious. Then Oedipus fell back on and appropriated desiring production as if all the productive forces emanated from Oedipus itself. The psychoanalyst became the carrier of Oedipus, the great agent of anti-production in desire. The same history as that of capital, with its enchanted, miraculated world. Also at the beginning, said Marx, the first capitalists could not be unaware of. Two three texts of Freud. It is easy to see that the problem is first of all practical, that it concerns above all else the practice of the cure. For the frenzied Oedipalization process takes form precisely at the moment when Oedipus has not yet received its full theoretical formulation as the nuclear complex and leads a marginal existence. The fact that Schreber's analysis was not in vivo detracts nothing from its exemplary value from the point of view of practice. In this text, 1911, Freud encounters the most formidable of questions, how does one dare reduce to the paternal theme a delirium so rich, so differentiated, so divine as the judge's since the judge in his memoirs makes only very brief references to the memory of his father. 
On several occasions Freud's text marks the extent to which he felt the difficulty, to begin with, it appears difficult to assign as cause of the malady even if only an occasional cause an outburst of homosexual libido directed at Dr. Flexig's person. Point two, but when we replace the doctor with the father and commission the father to explain the god of delirium, we ourselves have trouble following this ascension, we take liberties that can be justified only by the advantages they afford us in our attempt to understand the delirium. Point three, yet the more Freud states such scruples, the more he thrusts them aside and sweeps them away with a firm and confident response. And this response is double, it is not my fault if psychoanalysis attests to a great monotony and encounters the father everywhere in Flexig, in the God, in the Son, it is the fault of sexuality and its stubborn symbolism. Point four. Furthermore, it is not surprising that the father returns constantly in current deliriums in the most hidden and least recognizable guises, since he returns in fact everywhere and more visibly in religions and ancient myths, which express forces or mechanisms eternally. Active in the unconscious five it should be noted that Judge Schreber's destiny was not merely that of being sodomized, while still alive, by the rays from heaven, but also that of being posthumously oedipalized by Freud. From the enormous political, social, and historical content of Schreber's delirium, not one word is retained, as though the libido did not bother itself with such things. Freud invokes only a sexual argument, which consists in bringing about the union of sexuality and the familial complex, and a mythological argument, which consists in positing the adequation of the productive force of the unconscious and the edifying forces of myths and religions. This latter argument is very important, and it is not by chance that here Freud declares himself in agreement with Hume. In a certain way this agreement subsists after their break. If the unconscious is thought to express itself adequately in myths and religions, taking into account, of course, the work of transformation, there are two ways of reading this adequation, but they have in common the postulate that measures the unconscious against myth, and that from the start substitutes mere expressive forms for the productive formations. The basic question is never asked, but cast aside, why return to myth? Why take it as the model? The supposed adequation can then be interpreted in what is termed anagogical fashion, toward the higher. Or inversely, in analytical fashion, toward the lower, relating the myth to the drives. But since the drives are transferred from myth, traced from myth with the transformations taken into account. What we mean is that, starting from the same postulate, Jung is led to restore the most diffuse and spiritualized religiosity, whereas Freud is confirmed in his most rigorous atheism. Freud needs to deny the existence of God as much as Jung needs to affirm the essence of the divine, in order to interpret the commonly postulated adequation. But to render religion unconscious, or the unconscious religious, still amounts to injecting something religious into the unconscious. And what would Freudian analysis be without the celebrated guilt feelings ascribed to the unconscious? What came to pass in the history of psychoanalysis? Freud held to his atheism in heroic fashion. But all around him, more and more, they respectfully allowed him to speak, they let the old man speak, ready to prepare behind his back the reconciliation of the churches and psychoanalysis, the moment when the church would train its own psychoanalysts, and when it would become possible to write in the history of the movement, so even we are still pious. 
let us recall Marx's great declaration, he who denies God does only a secondary thing, for he denies God in order to posit the existence of man, to put man in God's place, the transformation taken into account, point six but the person who knows that the place of man is entirely elsewhere does not even allow the possibility of a question to subsist concerning an alien being, a being placed above man and nature, he no longer needs the mediation of myth, he no longer needs to go by way of this. Mediation the negation of the existence of God since he has attained those regions of an auto-production of the unconscious where the unconscious is no less atheist than orphan immediately atheist, immediately orphan. And doubtless an examination of the first argument would lead us to a similar conclusion. By joining sexuality to the familial complex, by making Oedipus into the criterion of sexuality in analysis the test of orthodoxy par excellence Freud himself posited the whole of social and metaphysical relations as an afterward or a beyond that desire was incapable of investing immediately. He then became rather indifferent to the fact that this beyond derives from the familial complex through the analytical transformation of desire, or is signified by it in an anagogical symbolization. Let us consider another text of Freud's, a later one, where Oedipus is already designated as the nuclear complex, a child is being beaten seven. The reader cannot escape the impression of a disquieting strangeness. Never was the paternal theme less visible, and yet never was it affirmed with as much passion and resolution. The imperialism of Oedipus is founded here on an absence. After all, of the three supposed phases of the girl's fantasy, the first is such that the father does not yet appear, while in the third the father no longer appears, that leaves the second, then, where the father shines forth in all his brilliance, clearly without doubt but indeed, this second phase has never had a real existence. It is never remembered, it has never succeeded in becoming conscious. It is a construction of analysis, but it is no less a necessity on that account. Eight. What is at issue in this fantasy? Some boys are beaten by someone the teacher, for example in the presence of the little girls. We are present from the start at a double Freudian reduction, which is in no way imposed by the fantasy, but is required by Freud in the manner of a presupposition. On the one hand Freud wants to deliberately reduce the group character of the fantasy to a purely individual dimension, the beaten children must in a way be the ego, substitutes for the subject himself, and the one who does the beating must be the father, father substitute. On the other hand it is necessary for the variations of the fantasy to be organized in disjunctions whose use must be strictly exclusive. Hence there will be a girl series and a boy series, but dissymmetrical, the female fantasy having three phases, the last of which is boys are beaten by the teacher, while the male fantasy has only two, the last of which is my mother beats me. The only common phase the second for the girls and the first for the boys affirms without doubt the prevalence of the father in both cases, but this is the famous non-existent phase. Such is always the case with Freud. Something common to the two sexes is required, but something that will be lacking in both, and that will distribute the lack in two non-symmetrical series, establishing the exclusive use of the disjunctions, you are girl or boy. Such is the case with Oedipus and its resolution, different in boys and in girls. Such is the case with castration, and its relationship to Oedipus in both instances. Castration is at once the common lot that is, the prevalent and transcendent phallus, 
and the exclusive distribution that presents itself in girls as desire for the penis, and in boys as fear of losing it or refusal of a passive attitude. This something in common must lay the foundation for the exclusive use of the disjunctions of the unconscious and teach us resignation. Resignation to Oedipus, to castration, for girls, renunciation of their desire for the penis, for boys, renunciation of male protest in short, assumption of one's sex. This something in common, the great phallus, the lack with two non-superimposable sides, is purely mythical, it is like the one in negative theology, it introduces lack into desire and causes exclusive series to emanate, to which it attributes a goal, an origin, and a path of resignation. The contrary should be said, neither is there anything in common between the two sexes, nor do they cease communicating with each other in a transverse mode where each subject possesses both of them, but with the two of them partitioned off, and where each subject communicates with one sex or the other in another subject. Such is the law of partial objects. Nothing is lacking, nothing can be defined as a lack, nor are the disjunctions in the unconscious ever exclusive, but rather the object of a properly inclusive use that we must analyze. Freud had a concept at his disposal for stating this contrary notion, the concept of bisexuality, and it was not by chance that he was never able or never wanted to give this concept the analytical position and extension it required. Without even going that far, a lively controversy developed when certain analysts, following Melanie Klein, tried to define the unconscious forces of the female sexual organ by positive characteristics in terms of partial objects and flows. This slight shift which did not suppress mythical castration but made it depend secondarily on the organ, instead of the organs depending on it met with great opposition from Freud.9 he maintained that the organ, from the viewpoint of the unconscious, could not be understood except by proceeding from a lack or a primal deprivation, and not the opposite. Here we have a properly analytical fallacy, which will be found again, to a considerable degree, in the theory of the signifier, that consists in passing from the detachable partial object to the position of a complete object as the thing detached, phallus. This passage implies a subject, defined as a fixed ego of one sex or the other, who necessarily experiences as a lack his subordination to the tyrannical complete object. This is perhaps no longer the case when the partial object is posited for itself on the body without organs, with as its sole subject not an ego, but the drive that forms the desiring machine along with it, and that enters into relationships of connection, disjunction, and conjunction with other partial objects, at the core of the corresponding multiplicity whose every element can only be defined positively. We must speak of castration in the same way we speak of oedipalization, whose crowning moment it is, castration designates the operation by which psychoanalysis castrates the unconscious, injects castration into the unconscious. Castration as a practical operation on the unconscious is achieved when the thousand breaks flows of desiring machines all positive, all productive are projected into the same mythical space, the unary stroke of the signifier. We have not finished chanting the litany of the ignorances of the unconscious, it knows nothing of castration or Oedipus, just as it knows nothing of parents, gods, the law, lack. The women's liberation movements are correct in saying, we are not castrated, 
so you get fucked.10 and far from being able to get by with anything like the wretched maneuver where men answer that this itself is proof that women are castrated or even console women by saying that men are castrated, too, all the while rejoicing that they are castrated the other way, on the side that is not superimposable it should be recognized that women's liberation movements contain, in a more or less ambiguous state, what belongs to all requirements of liberation, the force of the unconscious itself, the investment by desire of the social field, the disinvestment of repressive structures. Nor are we going to say that the question is not that of knowing if women are castrated, but only if the unconscious believes it, since all the ambiguity lies there. What does belief apply to the unconscious signify? What is an unconscious that no longer does anything but believe, rather than produce? What are the operations, the artifices that inject the unconscious with beliefs that are not even irrational, but on the contrary only too reasonable and consistent with the established order? Let us return to the fantasy, a child is being beaten, children are beaten a typical group fantasy where desire invests the social field and its repressive forms. If there is a mice end scene, it is directed by a social desiring machine whose product should not be considered abstractly, separating the girls and the boys cases, as if each were a little ego taking up its own business with daddy and mommy. On the contrary, we should consider the complementary ensemble made up of boy-girl and parents agents of production and anti-production, this ensemble being present at the same time in each individual and in the socius that presides over the organization of the group fantasy. Simultaneously the boys are beaten initiated by the teacher on the little girl's erotic stage, seeing machine, and obtain satisfaction in a masochistic fantasy involving the mother, anal machine. The result is that the boys are able to see only by becoming little girls, and the girls cannot experience the pleasure of punishment except by becoming boys. It is a whole chorus, a montage, back in the village after a raid in Vietnam, in the presence of their weeping sisters, the filthy marines are beaten by their instructor, on whose knees the mommy is seated, and they have orgasms for having been so evil, for having tortured so well. It's so bad, but also so good. Perhaps one will recall a sequence from the film Hearts and Minds, we see Colonel Patton, the general's son, saying that his guys are great, that they love their mothers, their fathers, and their country, that they cry at the religious services for their dead buddies, fine boys, then the colonel's face changes, grimaces, and reveals a big paranoiac in uniform who shouts in conclusion, but still, they're a bloody good bunch of killers. It is obvious that when traditional psychoanalysis explains that the instructor is the father, and that the colonel too is the father, and that the mother is nonetheless the father too, it reduces all of desire to a familial determination that no longer has anything to do with the social field actually invested by the libido. Of course there is always something from the father or the mother that is taken up in the signifying chain daddy's mustache, the mother's raised arm but it comes furtively to occupy a place among the collective agents. The terms of Oedipus do not form a triangle, but exist shattered into all corners of the social field the mother on the instructor's knees, the father next to the colonel. Group fantasy is plugged into and machined on the socius. Being fucked by the socius, wanting to be fucked by the socius, does not derive from the father and mother, even though the father and mother have their roles there as subordinate agents of transmission or execution. 
when the notion of group fantasy was elaborated in the perspective of institutional analysis in the works of the team at La Board Clinic, assembled around Jean Ari the first task was to show how it differed from individual fantasy. It became evident that group fantasy was inseparable from the symbolic articulations that define a social field insofar as it is real, whereas the individual fantasy fitted the whole of this field over imaginary givens. If this first distinction is drawn out, we see that the individual fantasy is itself plugged into the existing social field, but apprehends it in the form of imaginary qualities that confer on it a kind of transcendence or immortality under the shelter of which the individual, the ego, plays out its pseudo-destiny, what does it matter if I die, says the general, since the army is immortal? The imaginary dimension of the individual fantasy has a decisive importance over the death instinct, insofar as the immortality conferred on the existing social order carried into the ego all the investments of repression, the phenomena of identification, of superegoization and castration, all the resignation desires, becoming a general, acquiring low, middle, or high rank, including the resignation to dying in the service of this order, whereas the drive itself is projected onto the outside. And turned against the others, death to the foreigner, to those who are not of our own ranks. The revolutionary pole of group fantasy becomes visible, on the contrary, in the power to experience institutions themselves as mortal, to destroy them or change them according to the articulations of desire and the social field, by making the death instinct into a veritable institutional creativity. For that is precisely the criterion at least the formal criterion that distinguishes the revolutionary institution from the enormous inertia which the law communicates to institutions in an established order. As Nietzsche says, churches, armies, states which of all these dogs wants to die. There results a third difference between group fantasy and the so-called individual fantasy. The latter has as subject the ego, insofar as it is determined by the legal and legalized institutions in which it imagines itself, to the point where, even in its perversions, the ego conforms to the exclusive use of the disjunctions imposed by the law, for example, Oedipal homosexuality. But group fantasy no longer has anything but the drives themselves as subject, and the desiring machines formed by them with the revolutionary institutions. The group fantasy includes the disjunctions, in the sense that each subject, discharged of his personal identity but not of his singularities, enters into relations with others following the communication proper to partial objects, everyone passes into the body of the other on the body without organs. In this respect Klossowski has convincingly shown the inverse relationship that pulls the fantasy in two directions, as the economic law establishes perversion in the psychic exchanges, or as the psychic exchanges on the contrary promote a subversion of the law, anachronistic, relative to the institutional level of gregariousness, the singular state can, according to its more or less forceful intensity, bring about a deactualization of the institution itself and denounce it in turn as anachronistic 11. The two kinds of fantasy, or rather the two regimes, are therefore distinguished according to whether the social production of goods imposes its rule on desire through the intermediary of an ego whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves, or whether the desiring production of affects imposes its rule on institutions whose elements are no longer anything but drives. If we must still speak of utopia in this sense, a la Fourier, it is most assuredly not as an ideal model, 
but as revolutionary action and passion. In his recent works Klossowski indicates to us the only means of bypassing the sterile parallelism where we flounder between Freud and Marx, by discovering how social production and relations of production are an institution of desire, and how effects or drives form part of the infrastructure itself. For they are part of it, they are present there in every way while creating within the economic forms their own repression, as well as the means for breaking this repression. The development of distinctions between group and individual fantasy shows sufficiently well, at last, that there is no individual fantasy. Instead there are two types of groups, subject groups and subjugated groups, with Oedipus and castration forming the imaginary structure under which members of the subjugated groups are induced to live or fantasize individually their membership in the group. It must still be said that the two types of groups are perpetually shifting, a subject group always being threatened with subjugation, a subjugated group capable in certain cases of being forced to take on a revolutionary role. It is therefore all the more disturbing to see to what extent Freudian analysis retains from the fantasy only its lines of exclusive disjunction, and flattens it into its individual or pseudo-individual dimensions, which by their very nature refer the fantasy to subjugated groups, rather than carrying out the opposite operation and disengaging in the fantasy the underlying element of a revolutionary group potential. When we learn that the instructor, the teacher, is daddy, and the colonel too, and also the mother when all the agents of social production and anti-production are in this way reduced to the figures of familial reproduction we can understand why the panicked libido no longer risks abandoning Oedipus, and internalizes it. The libido internalizes it in the form of a castrating duality between the subject of the statement, I announce, and the subject of the enunciation, as is characteristic of the pseudo-individual fantasy, I, as a man, understand you, but as judge, as boss, as colonel, or general, that is to say as the father, I condemn you. But this duality is artificial, derived, and supposes a direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation in the group fantasy. Institutional analysis tries to trace its difficult path between the repressive asylum and the legalistic hospital on the one hand, and contractual psychoanalysis on the other. From the outset, the psychoanalytic relationship modeled itself after the contractual relationship of the most traditional bourgeois medicine, the feigned exclusion of a third party, the hypocritical role of money, to which psychoanalysis brought farcical new justifications, the pretended time limitation that contradicts itself by reproducing a debt to infinity, by feeding an inexhaustible transference, and by always nursing new conflicts. We are astonished when we hear that a terminated analysis is by that very fact a failure, even if this proposition is accompanied by the analyst's little smile. We are surprised when we hear a knowledgeable analyst mention, in passing, that one of his patients still dreams of being invited to eat or have a drink at his place, after several years of analysis, as if this were not a tiny sign of the abject dependence to which analysis reduced the patients. How can we ward off? in the practice of the cure, this abject desire that makes us bend our knees, lays us on the couch, and makes us remain there. Let us consider a third and final text of Freud's, Analysis Terminable and Interminable, 1937.12 We prefer not to follow a recent suggestion that it would be better to translate analysis finite, analysis infinite, since finite infinite is almost mathematics or logic, 
whereas the problem is particularly practical and concrete. Does this story have an ending? Can an analysis be ended, can the process of analysis be terminated, yes or no? Can it be completed, or is it condemned to a constant self-perpetuation? As Freud says, can a currently given conflict be exhausted, can the one who is sick be forewarned against ulterior conflicts, can even new conflicts be awakened for a preventive purpose? A great beauty animates this text of Freud's, an undefined something that is hopeless, disenchanted, tired, and at the same time a serenity, a certitude in the finished work. It is Freud's testament. He is going to die, and knows it. He knows something is wrong in psychoanalysis. The cure tends to be more and more interminable. He knows that soon he will no longer be there to see how things are going. So he takes stock of the obstacles to treatment, with the serenity of the person who senses what a treasure his work is, but senses too the poisons that have already filtered in. Everything would be fine if the economic problem of desire were merely quantitative, it would be a matter of reinforcing the ego against the drives. The celebrated strong, mature ego, the contract, the pact between the analyst and an ego that is normal in spite of everything. Except that there are qualitative factors in the desiring economy that indeed present an obstacle to treatment, and Freud reproaches himself for not having taken them sufficiently into account. The first of these factors is the rock of castration, the rock with two non-symmetrical faces, which creates in us an incurable alveus, and against which the analyst stumbles. The second is a qualitative aptitude for conflict, which means that the quantity of libido does not branch into two variable forces corresponding to heterosexuality and homosexuality, but creates in most people irreducible oppositions between the two forces. Finally, the third factor of such economic importance that it outweighs the dynamic and topical considerations concerns a type of resistance that is non-localizable. It would seem that certain subjects have such a viscous libido, or on the contrary such a liquid one, that nothing succeeds in taking hold. It would be a mistake to see in this remark of Freud's nothing more than an observation of detail, a mere anecdote. In fact, it concerns what is most essential in the phenomenon of desire, the qualitative flows of the libido. In some fine pages, Andre Green recently took up the question again by making up a list of three types of sessions, the first two of which comprise counter-indications, the third alone constituting the ideal session in analysis. According to type I, viscosity, resistance of a hysterical form, the session is dominated by a heavy, weighty, boggy climate. The silences are leaden, the discourse is dominated by the events of the day, is uniform, it is a descriptive narration where no reference to the past is disclosable, it unfolds along a continuous thread, unable to allow itself any break. Dreams are narrated, the enigma of dream is taken up in the secondary elaboration that makes dream as narration and as event take precedence over dream as a working over of thoughts. Sticky Transference 13. According to Type 2, liquidity, resistance of an obsessional form, here the session is dominated by an extreme mobility of representations of all sorts. The language is unfettered, rapid, almost torrential. Everything enters here. The patient could just as easily say the opposite of everything he is uttering without changing anything fundamental to the analytic situation. 
All of this is without consequence, since the analysis slides off the couch like water off a duck's back. The unconscious does not cause anything to stick, there is no anchoring in the transference. Here the transference is volatile. Only the third type remains, whose characteristics define a good analysis. The patient speaks in order to constitute the process of a chain of signifiers. The meaning is not attached to the signified to which each of the enunciated signifiers refers, but is constituted by process, suture, the concatenation of bound elements. Every interpretation furnished by the patient can offer itself as an already signified awaiting its meaning. For this reason interpretation is always retrospective, as the perceived meaning. So that was what this meant. What is serious is that Freud never questions the process of the cure. Of course it is too late for him, but is it too late for those who come after him? He interprets these things as obstacles to the cure, and not as shortcomings of the treatment itself, or as effects or counter-effects of his method. For castration as an analyzable state or non-analyzable, the ultimate rock is the effect of castration as a psychoanalytic act. An Oedipal homosexuality the qualitative aptitude for conflict is rather the effect of Oedipalization, which the treatment does not invent, but precipitates and accentuates within the artificial conditions of its exercise, transference. And inversely, when flows of libido resist therapeutic practice, rather than being a resistance of the ego, this is the intense outcry of all of desiring production. We already knew that the pervert resisted Oedipalization, why should he surrender, since he has invented for himself other territorialities, more artificial still and more lunar than that of Oedipus? We knew the schizo was not Oedipalizable, because he is beyond territoriality, because he has carried his flows right into the desert. But what remains, once we learn that resistances of an hysterical or an obsessional form bear witness to the anoedipal quality of the flows of desire on the very terrain of Oedipus? That is precisely what qualitative economy shows, flows ooze, they traverse the triangle, breaking apart its vertices. The Oedipal wad does not absorb these flows, any more than it could seal off a jar of jam or plug a dike. Against the walls of the triangle, toward the outside, flows exert the irresistible pressure of lava or the invincible oozing of water. What are the most favorable conditions for the cure, it is asked. A flow that lets itself be plugged by Oedipus, partial objects that let themselves be subsumed under the category of a complete object, even if absent the phallus of castration, breaks flows that let themselves be projected onto a mythical space, polyvocal chains that let themselves be biunivocalized, linearized, suspended from a signifier, an unconscious that lets itself be expressed, connective syntheses that let themselves be taken in a global and specific use, disjunctive synthesis that let themselves be taken in an exclusive, restrictive use, conjunctive synthesis that let themselves be taken in a personal and segregative use. For what is the meaning of so that was what this meant? The crushing of the so onto Oedipus and castration. The sigh of relief, you see, the colonel, the instructor, the teacher, the boss, all of this meant that, Oedipus and castration, all history in a new version. We are not saying that Oedipus and castration do not amount to anything. We are Oedipalized, we are castrated, psychoanalysis didn't invent these operations, 
to which it merely lends the new resources and methods of its genius. But is this sufficient to silence the outcry of desiring production, we are all schizos. We are all perverts. We are all libidos that are too viscous and too fluid and not by preference, but wherever we have been carried by the deterritorialized flows. What neurotic, provided he is somewhat serious, is not leaning against the rock of schizophrenia, a rock in this case mobile, aerolytic. Who does not haunt the perverse territorialities, beyond the kindergartens of Oedipus? Who does not feel in the flows of his desire both the lava and the water? And above all, what brings about our sickness? Schizophrenia itself, as a process? Or is it brought about by the frantic neuroticization to which we have been delivered, and for which psychoanalysis has invented new means Oedipus and castration? Is it schizophrenia as a process that makes us sick, or is it the self-perpetuation of the process in the void a horrible exasperation, the production of the schizophrenic as entity? Or is it the confusion of the process with a goal, the production of the pervert artifice, or the premature interruption of the process, the production of the neurotic analysis? We are forcibly confronted with Oedipus and castration, we are reduced to them, either so as to measure us against that cross, or to establish that we cannot measure up to it. But in any case the harm has been done, the treatment has chosen the path of Oedipalization, all cluttered with refuse, instead of the schizophrenization that must cure us of the cure. 3. The Connective Synthesis of Production Given the syntheses of the unconscious, the practical problem is that of their use, legitimate or not, and of the conditions that define a use of synthesis as legitimate or not. Take the example of homosexuality though it is something more than an example. We noted how, in Proust, the famous pages of Sodom and Gomorrah, Cities of the Plain, interlace two openly contradictory themes, the fundamental guilt of the accursed races and the radical innocence of flowers. The diagnosis of Oedipal homosexuality with a mother fixation, of a dominant depressive nature and a sadomasochistic guilt, was quickly applied to Proust. In a more general way still, some critics were too quick in discovering contradictions, either in order to declare them irreducible, or to resolve them, or to show that they were merely apparent, according to preference. In truth, there are never contradictions, apparent or real, but only degrees of humor. And inasmuch as reading itself has its degrees of humor, from black to white, with which it evaluates the coexisting degrees of what it reads, the sole problem is always one of allocation on a scale of intensities that assigns the position and use of each thing, each being, or each scene, there is this and then that, and let's make do with it, too bad if it doesn't suit us. In this regard it is possible that Charles's course admonition is prophetic, a lot we care about our old grandmother, you little shit. For what does in fact take place in In Search of Lost Time, one and the same story with infinite variations. It is clear that the narrator sees nothing, hears nothing, and that he is a body without organs, or like a spider poised in its web, observing nothing, but responding to the slightest sign, to the slightest vibration by springing on its prey. Everything begins with nebulae, statistical holes whose outlines are blurred, molar or collective formations comprising singularities distributed haphazardly, a living room, a group of girls, a landscape. Then, within these nebulae or these collectives, sides take shape, 
series are arranged, persons figure in these series, under strange laws of lack, absence, asymmetry, exclusion, non-communication, vice, and guilt. Next, everything becomes blurred again, everything comes apart, but this time in a molecular and pure multiplicity, where the partial objects, the boxes, the vessels all have their positive determinations, and enter into aberrant communication following a transversal that runs through the whole work, an immense flow that each partial object produces and cuts again, reproduces and cuts at the same time. More than vice, says Proust, it is madness and its innocence that disturb us. If schizophrenia is the universal, the great artist is indeed the one who scales the schizophrenic wall and reaches the land of the unknown, where he no longer belongs to any time, any milieu, any school. Such is the case in an illustrative passage, the first kiss given Albertine. Albertine's face is at first a nebula, barely extracted from the collective of girls. Then her person disengages itself, through a series of views that are like distinct personalities, with Albertine's face jumping from one plane to another as the narrator's lips draw nearer her cheek.